0: Good morning. Hey, it's good to be with y'all. It's good to be with y'all. Thanks. Peace be with you. Well, uh, my name is Garrison, and I'm the pastor here at Veritas Dayton. Uh, Lord willing, that'll be the last time that I ever have to say I'm the pastor here. Lord willing, tonight we'll be able to say I am a pastor here at Veritas Dayton. Um, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, we're very glad that you're here. If this is your first time here, blessings to you, peace. Uh, we're very, very glad that you're here. Um, if you want to open your Bibles with me to three places, we're going to be looking at three separate texts this morning. We're going to be looking at Acts 2, 41 to 42. We've been in this uh, these two verses for uh, five weeks now. This is the fifth Sunday that we are in Acts 2, 41 to 42. And then we're also going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. And 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 32. It's three different texts Acts 2, 41 to 42. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. And 1 Corinthians 11, 23. To 32. If you don't have a Bible, there should be white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those. You can turn to pages 531, 557, and 558, and that'll get you where you need to go for those three scripture texts. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. All right, this morning we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's dig in. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, starting with Acts two forty-one to 42. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers." Now for first Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now first Corinthians eleven twenty-three to thirty-two. For I received from the Lord Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned. Along with the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. We thank you for inspiring your word. We, we ask now that you would make it, that you would make it effectual for the salvation and sanctification of your people as it is proclaimed into our ears. Would you help us to receive the word with faith, believing you, trusting you, resting upon Christ for our salvation. Would you help us to not just be hearers of the word only, but doers also, Lord, to obey the word. And Lord, we ask that ultimately this morning you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that you would be praised above all things. Would your name be lifted high? Would your gospel be clear and potent? Would it pierce our hearts, Lord? And we ask that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our rock, our redeemer. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, we are in week five of a six week sermon series called Devoted. And we've simply been looking at the devotion uh, of this early church immediately after the event that we call Pentecost, which is where the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was poured out on the church. And, And we've identified five practices. Uh, that this church devoted themselves to. And we often refer to these practices as the means of grace. Uh, The means of grace are just the, the ordinary ways through which Christ builds his church. These are the means through which Christ has promised in the word of God to be present among us in a special way and to be at work among us to make us more like him. And so, you know, this is one of those things, we don't, we don't need to wonder uh, where we meet with God. We don't need to, to f- try to figure out where God is and where we can meet with him. He's promised to be in these places, in these means of grace. And these means of grace are what this church has devoted themselves to and what the church has devoted themselves to for the last 2,000 years. They include the apostles' teaching. Uh, that is the message of the apostles as it was preached and taught in this local church setting. It was preached and taught to their ears. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to their, their partnership in the gospel, their mutual bond in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this devotion to the fellowship led them to spend loads of time together in worship and just sharing ordinary life together. It even led them to sharing uh, their, their material possessions with one another uh, and for those in need. Uh, And then after looking at the fellowship, we took a step back and we went to verse 41 and we looked at how this church devoted themselves to baptism. They devoted themselves to baptism. We saw that those who received this apostolic teaching of Peter in Acts 2, they were baptized and they were added to the number of this church and they were added to this fellowship. And next week we'll see how they were devoted to the prayers meaning they were devoted to corporate worship together, to singing songs, hymns, and and spiritual songs to one another and praying together as the people of the triune God. And this morning, we're going to look at this corporate means of grace that Luke calls the breaking of bread, which is the title he gives to the Lord's Supper. Uh, last week we looked at baptism, this week we're looking at the Lord's Supper, and these together are often referred to in the church as the ordinances. You may maybe heard of them referred to as the ordinances or the sacraments. That's, that's what they're often referred to together. And the ordinances and the sacraments are often given this kind of special designation, this, this uh, being distinguished uh, from the other means of grace because they have physical tangible elements to them. There's bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. There's, there's water involved with baptism. There's things that we can feel and see and taste associated with these ordinances. And, and the Lord gave us these because we're, we're embodied creatures. We, and sometimes we need uh, things that we can feel and things that we can see in order to strengthen our faith. And, th- and so Christ graciously gave us uh, as local churches these physical means of grace to mark his people off from the world and, and to form us in our fellowship together. And now, as we look at this early church's devotion to the breaking of bread, um, this might come as a bit of a shock to some of us uh, that they were devoted to the Lord's Supper. Um, maybe for others of us, not so much. Maybe, maybe you grew up in, in sort of a, a high church. Background, maybe you grew up in something like Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism or Anglicanism or Lutheranism or something along those lines. Uh, and, and if you grew up in one of those traditions, you probably didn't call it the breaking of bread or, or the Lord's Supper. Uh, you, you probably uh, heard it referred to as the Mass or Holy Communion or the Eucharist or, or the Divine Service or something along those lines. And it was, it was a central point in the church service for you. Uh, you could literally say, if you grew up in one of those traditions, that the main reason you went to church on Sunday morning was to receive the Lord's Supper. Uh, it, it, was, it was a central point of your life uh, as, um, uh, as a member of that particular church. And, and so although, you know, we don't have all the smells and bells of, of a high church <laughs> liturgy or anything like that, uh, the, the fact that we receive the Lord's Supper here weekly at Veritas and, and the fact that uh, we, we want to be devoted to it like this church uh, here in Acts 2 is, is not a new idea to you. That's nothing new to you. Uh, but for others of us, we, we may have grown up in sort of low church backgrounds uh, where the Lord's Supper was not as central right? Um, maybe you grew up in a Baptist church. We're a Baptist church. Maybe you grew up in a Baptist church, or maybe you grew up in a, in a Pentecostal church, or a, or a church of Christ, or Methodist church, where the Lord's Supper um, sometimes can typically kind of be sort of peripheral. Um, it was observed just a few times a year, maybe once a quarter if you do it a lot, maybe on a special occasion, maybe once a month in some churches, uh, and often, unfortunately, Uh, the Lord's Supper can be somewhat neglected in in those kinds of circles, and in the kind of circles that that we're a part of. And so if you grew up in one of those sorts of traditions, uh, the fact that we see the Lord's Supper so central to our life together as a church may seem a little strange to you. Calling you to be devoted to it may seem a little strange to you, maybe even a little uncomfortable. Uh, The the idea of being devoted to it strikes you as odd. or, Or maybe you didn't grow up in church at all. Um, and, and, and maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian household, you came to faith later in life. And once you became a Christian, uh, the, the thought of receiving a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine as an act of worship is just totally out there, just totally weird to you, weirds you out a little bit. Or, or maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian at all at this point, and you think the fact that Christians do this is totally strange. Well, this morning, uh, we want to take a look at what the Lord's Supper is, and in unpacking it a little bit, Uh, 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 we we, we hope to see why we're so devoted to observing it and celebrating it and why we as the people of God should hold it in such high esteem. And after we take a look at what the Lord's Supper is, we'll close with just a few words on how we as the people of Veritas, as this local expression of God's family, how we can be devoted to the breaking of bread like this early church was. We're going to try to answer two big questions. What is the breaking of bread? And how can we be devoted to it? What is the breaking of bread and how can we be devoted to it? First, what is the breaking of bread? Uh, now, not unlike baptism as we saw last week, is kind of a hard question to answer because the Lord's Supper is uh, a lot of things. It's meaning, it's significance, it's certainly much wider and deeper than we could cover in any kind of 30-minute sermon. But we're going to try to cover the sort of basic claims that Paul makes here concerning the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. First, we see that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of Jesus Christ signifying the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And take a look at 1 Corinthians 11:23 23 to 24. Paul writes to the church in the city of Corinth, I received from the Lord, that's Jesus, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus himself, before he went to the cross, he ordained this meal and commanded his people to observe it. Uh, and so this isn't some man-made right or tradition. This isn't just something This isn't something that will ever become outdated, and so we have the option to kind of give it up and, and come up with more relevant practices to our time and place and history. Uh, this, this isn't optional for the Christian life. It was ordained by Christ himself, and he gave it to the church to continue and to practice until, uh, until when? Until he, comes. until he comes. What does verse 26 say? As often as you eat this bread, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he Comes and so we observe the meal until the return of Christ, until the new heavens, the new earth uh, are, are set up here, and, and and when we get to enjoy feasting with Jesus in His bodily presence forever, with his, in His heavenly banquet, we're to observe the Lord's Supper until that point. And the and the food that He ordained that we celebrate in this meal are bread and wine. Now, there's nothing special, uh, really, about the the bread. And the wine, uh, we get this bread from the Crumloft kitchen uh, where it's made, and we get the wine from Kroger, this Kroger right up the street here. It's, there's nothing really special about it. Uh, we don't do anything magical to them. It's just bread and wine, ordinary bread and wine. But the bread and the wine symbolize something. Uh, they're not mere symbols, as we'll see in just a few moments, but they're certainly symbols. When Jesus broke the bread and gave it to the, the, the disciples, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Uh, that doesn't mean that the body is lit, the bread is literally the body of Jesus, uh, but th- but that it's a representation of his body. To us, The bread is a symbol of the broken body of Jesus. We take the bread and we break it, and it's supposed to signify to us the broken body of Jesus. He had nails driven through his hands. He had a, a spear pierce his side. He had thorns pressed down into his skull. He had, he, he had his back filleted with a whip. His body was broken for us, and this bread is supposed to signify, represent you, proclaim to you, this is the body of of Jesus. That's what the bread signifies. And likewise, when he gave them the wine, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. These little cups up here uh, of wine, some are um, grape juice, but, but these uh, are, are representing the blood, the shed blood of Jesus to us. Just as grapes are crushed to give us wine, Jesus was crushed and wounded, giving us his blood that washes us and cleanses us and purchases us and forgives us as the people of God. This is the New covenant, and this cup is what uh, is symbolizes the new covenant to us the the, the forgiveness of sins and the the uh, being filled with the holy Spirit this the, Jesus shed his blood for that, and this wine symbolizes that to us and think about what takes place as well with the bread and the wine. Uh, we eat the bread and we drink the wine we receive it into our bodies we receive the bread and the wine into our signifying to us that that the death of Christ is not just a historical event. It is a historical event. It's very important that we recognize that. But that it's also it's a present power to those of us who believe in Jesus, who by faith receive the gift of Christ. Uh, his body was broken. His blood was shed for you. It was done for your forgiveness and redemption and restoration. And if you've received that gift through faith, even now you are in Christ and he is in you. Just as the bread and the wine are received into you, Christ is in you and his righteousness, his acceptableness, his, his His perfection has been laid on you just as your sin was laid on him when he died on that tree. That's what this meal that Jesus ordained and that we observe until he returns signifies to us and represents to us. And that stirs up a response in us, doesn't it? Which brings us to answer number two for what the Lord's Supper is. Two, we see that the Lord's Supper is a means of giving thanks. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, 24, it says that Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Now, if you've been around Veritas for a bit, you've probably noticed that before we receive uh, the bread and the wine, we say take and eat and drink and be what? Be thankful. Be thankful. And, And then after we receive the bread and the wine, we spend the time in prayer giving thanks to Jesus for what he's done for us on the cross. Um, And and this is why we do that. This Greek word translated as given thanks here is the word that we get the word Eucharist from. You've probably heard that word. Uh, You've heard some Christians refer to the Lord's Supper as the Eucharist, the Eucharist. And sometimes we Protestants kind of shy away from using uh, that word and avoid this term because we associate it with Roman Catholicism. But there's nothing objectionable in the term itself. It's just a term that simply means thanksgiving, It's a term that means thanksgiving, and in fact, we should certainly see this meal as a time of thanksgiving. We should give thanks in this meal. What we celebrate in this meal is that Christ died for us, that his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, and so we should receive this meal as a God-ordained time of giving thanks to Christ for his great sacrifice for us. In fact, church services in the first few centuries Um, really focused in on this aspect of the meal. They would have lengthy prayers of thanksgiving before and after receiving the bread and wine. They had very specific prayers that they all corporately prayed together. They would pray these prayers together. And then after these lengthy corporate prayers, then the minister would get up and he would pray extemporaneously for some time, giving thanks for Christ's death on the cross for us, his work for the forgiveness of our sins. And you know, this is one aspect of the meal I think we could emphasize a little more um, as as a church. Uh, As we see what this meal represents to us, our sin and our misery and the great cost uh, that Christ paid uh, to give us what we don't deserve, forgiveness and eternal life. Uh, we, We didn't lift a finger to earn this. We can't in a million years deserve it but we've been given this gift completely free of charge and at great expense to Christ. Therefore, we should come to this meal as a time of thanksgiving as we remember what Christ has done for us. Which brings us to the, to the third answer for what the Lord's Supper is. We see that the Lord's Supper is also a means of remembering Christ's death. Now, this is probably a part of the Lord's Supper that most of us are familiar with. It's a time of remembering Christ's death. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24 and 25 uh, he says, Christ says that we're to receive the bread and the wine, at, uh, he says, in remembrance of me. Um, now we need to realize that this meal, uh, the Lord's Supper, is not an entirely new thing in the people of God. In the old covenant, the nation of Israel regularly received this meal that we refer to. As the Lord's Supper, uh, or as not as the Lord's Supper, rather, but as the Passover meal. I apologize. Uh, and And they gathered to receive this meal, to observe this meal as a memorial of the Exodus story. Once a year, they would gather to do this. In the Exodus, the nation of Israel uh, was rescued and redeemed from slavery in Egypt. Uh, the 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 Lord instituted then this Passover meal as a means of the Israelites remembering and recollecting and contemplating that event, and it was actually the Passover in the Passover meal in a particular Passover meal that Jesus instituted the Lord's supper as the fulfillment and the replacement of the Passover meal. And it's in the Lord's Supper that we remember and recollect and contemplate this even greater exodus, our, our, our freedom, our redemption, our, our rescue from sin and slavery uh, to, to sin and death. Uh, to use a sort of inadequate uh, illustration, think about our beloved holidays, Americans, the 4th of July, uh, Independence Day. Every year we get together and we eat enormous amounts of dogs and birds, and we b- explode things. We blow things up. Um, We love to do that as Americans, don't we? Uh, We blow things up, and we remember the day that the United States was formed as a nation, the freedom that we enjoy. Uh, Well, similarly, we look back every Lord's Day to the work of Christ and remember his sacrifice, wherein we were formed as the people of God, how he formed us as his holy nation, his holy people, the people of the kingdom of Jesus. And not only looking back, but, but also as we presently celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming Christ's death. We're proclaiming that reality. Fourth, we see that the Lord's Supper is a means of proclaiming Christ's death. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six, 26, Paul says, "...as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes." So similar to how we saw baptism last week, how it's an act of an individual announcing to the world that they're a Christian, and the Lord's Supper, this is a a similar act in which we take part in together as a church family, wherein we announce the gospel, we proclaim the gospel as we partake of this meal together. Uh, You know, hardly any of us will ever get up here and preach uh, from the pulpit and preach the Bible. Uh, we'll, hardly, ever, hardly any of us will ever get up and proclaim the gospel in a setting like this, but, but all of us who are Christians take part in proclaiming the gospel every single Sunday. You take part, you proclaim the gospel every single Sunday when you take part in observing and celebrating and receiving the Lord's Supper. Uh, the, the, if you've been trying to figure out how, how to evangelize a neighbor, a friend, a family member, a coworker, something like that, bring them to church. And as they see you receive the Lord's Supper, they will see, they will hear the gospel being proclaimed to them. And they will see that you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And be, the gospel will be proclaimed to them. It will be communicated to them because this meal proclaims the gospel, proclaims the Lord's death for the forgiveness of sins. That's what this meal proclaims to us. It's a proclamation of the death of Christ. But now, um, up to this point, I I think we'd all be pretty comfortable with what we've learned so far. Uh, You know, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of Jesus, symbolizing His body and His shed blood. It's a means of giving thanks to Christ for His death, remembering His death, proclaiming His death. But the Lord's Supper is not only that. Uh, it's also a, a supernatural event. The Lord's Supper is not just our work of giving thanks. It's not just our work of remembering and proclaiming, but Christ himself, Christ Jesus is present and he's at work in, and he's at work among us in this meal. This meal, the Lord's Supper, uh, I, I feel uh, very comfortable telling you, it's, it's a supernatural event wherein the risen Lord Jesus descends to meet with us spiritually to bless us and meet with us and to share with us the benefits of his death on the cross. And that's what we see in these next few points here. Fifth, uh, the Lord's Supper is a means of blessing. Flip back to 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Uh, if you're in 1 Corinthians 11, flip back to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So really quick, this, this cup is a cup Of blessing. There's blessing for us as followers of Christ as we receive this meal together. This is what we've been communicating. We call the Lord's Supper a means of grace. It's a means through which Jesus is at work to give us blessing that we don't deserve, that we haven't earned. It's a cup of blessing. So hear me say this. The Lord's Supper is not just a time for us to kind of take mental note of the cross. For, for us to just kind of, uh, you know, have an object lesson after the sermon. The Lord's Supper is not just a mere, uh, uh, mere memorial. It's not just us taking mental note. It's not just an object lesson. To many of us, I think we automatically go there, that the Lord's Supper is merely a sign, a symbol, merely a memorial, merely uh, us taking mental note of the cross. It's just kind of a personal quiet time wherein we kind of have a snack. Um, but there's real blessing, there's real grace communicated to us as we receive this meal together. How so? Uh, well, number six, we see that the Lord's Supper is a means of presently communing with Christ. It's a means of presently communing with Christ. Take another look at 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless. Listen, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at this word fellowship in Acts 2.42, and we saw that it's the word koinonia, uh, a word that is often translated as communion or fellowship or sharing in or participation. And that's the same word that we see here translated as participation. Uh, we see that the bread and the wine are means of sharing or participating in the body and blood of Jesus as we receive this meal together. We, we commune with the body and the blood of Jesus as we receive this meal together. And, uh, you know, this may make some of us a bit uncomfortable uh, because we've been trained to think, uh, uh, be trained to be skeptical of any kind of supernatural claims associated with the ordinances. Uh, but that's okay. It, it's okay for the Bible to make us uncomfortable sometimes. And so I want to push us a little here uh, and, and by telling us this, that there's a supernatural and somewhat mysterious thing that happens when we, wherein we commune with the risen Lord Jesus and, uh, and, and receive, sharing the benefits of his death on the cross for us when we receive the Lord's Supper. Uh, and, and I know that, that seems a little strange. You might wonder how. I love how John Calvin once answered the question of how this takes place. And he goes, uh, I don't really want to say. Uh, I, I just, I don't want to speak, uh, you know, to, to such a great mystery. Uh, there's, there's mystery here, and that's okay. I, I love how this Old Baptist Confession of Faith puts it, for those of you who are Baptists, maybe make you a little more comfortable. Uh, it, it, this Old Baptist Confession, the Second London Confession, says that when we receive the bread and the wine inwardly and by faith, not physically or bodily, but spiritually, we receive and feed upon Christ crucified and receive all the benefits of his death. So there's a special way that we experience oneness with Christ during this meal that we don't at other times. There's a special way that he's present in and amongst us as we receive this meal together that he isn't at other times. Um, Maybe we could kind of compare it to uh, kind of like uh, intercourse in marriage. You know, it's, it's not a, a perfect illustration. Don't read too much into it. Uh, that could be weird. But a husband and a wife are made one on their wedding day, right? There's, there's marital union uh, in a married couple uh, from their wedding day from that point onward. Uh, but there's also a way that they are made one and they are present to each other in intercourse that they're not at other times. Uh, There is a special way that married couples enjoy the the benefits of one another and experience oneness with one another and receive one another and are present to one another in intercourse that they're not at other times just normally in their union in marriage. And there's somewhat of a corresponding picture to our union with Christ. We're one with Christ in all times, in all places. He's present to us in, 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 in some way at all times, in all places. We are in Him. He is in us at all times, all places. That never changes. But we're one with him in a special way when we receive the supper. He's present to us in a special way, particularly, a particularly intimate way when we receive the supper. At the table, we enjoy communion with him. Uh, and to be clear, that's, that's actually where we get the term from, communion. Uh, this text right here, we, ha- we enjoy communion with Jesus in this meal. And to be clear, the presence of Jesus is not a physical or bodily presence in this meal. Uh, some Christians have tried to say that the way that we commune with the body and blood of Jesus in this meal is that the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus, or that Jesus is physically bodily present to us uh, at the meal. Uh, but that's not what's being said here. The physical and bodily presence of Jesus is in heaven, and the physical bodily presence of Jesus stays in heaven at all times. Uh, that's, that's clear in Scripture. Uh, but but Jesus, although he physically remains in heaven, bodily, uh, in a bodily manner, remains in heaven by his Holy Spirit, he is spiritually present in our midst in this meal, and he's spiritually present in, their, in this meal uh, in, in a way that he isn't present at other times. And so as we saw earlier, we should understand the bread and wine as being symbols of the body and blood of Jesus, but that's not all they are. The bread and the wine are also means through which we receive the body and blood of Jesus spiritually by faith. They're visible signs, but they're more than that. This meal is not a mere memorial or a mere uh, symbol. Uh, The spiritual presence of Christ is given in the meal. We obey Jesus' command in John 6.53 here to feast on the flesh of Jesus and to drink His blood. We feast on Jesus in this meal. He spiritually nourishes us in this meal by strengthening our faith and assuring us of our forgiveness and communicating the benefits of his death on the cross to us in this meal. To receive this meal as a Christian by faith is to participate in the body and blood of Jesus. To receive this meal is to share in, to commune with the body and blood of Jesus. But we also see that it's not just a means of communing with Jesus, but also with one another. Uh, we see in the Lord's Supper, uh, in the Lord's Supper number seven, that it's also a means of creating unity within the church. First Corinthians 10, 17 says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Uh, now that sentence might actually seem a bit backward to you. Uh, generally, we would probably think of the Lord's Supper in this way. Uh, we are one body in Jesus. We are one in Christ. Therefore, we receive the Lord's Supper together. Uh, And I'm certain that's true in one sense. but What Paul is saying here is that because we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're one body. So because we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are one body. This is one reason that we should never uh, observe the Lord's Supper as individuals in our personal quiet times or that uh, married couples should uh, uh, partake of the Lord's Supper as like a a spectacle to uh, the congregation at their wedding uh, unless they want to give communion to everyone else there. Uh, this meal was given for corporate observance. It's a communal meal. It's a family meal. It's a meal that creates unity amongst a body of believers. It creates and literally forms us as a local fellowship of believers, as a local church. Paul is saying here that as we come together to commune with Christ and to be bonded with Christ at the Lord's table, we're also being bound together miraculously as God's family, as Christ's church. I... I uh, I heard a a story from a pastor a while back. He was pastoring this one particular church during the Vietnam War, and there was a lot of tension uh, at the U.S. during that time. Many were opposed to the war. They were passionately protesting, uh, very very much so. Others thought the war was just, that the U.S. needed to be there. Uh, And there were these two members in this church who were on these kind of opposing sides to one another. Uh, and and they vehemently disagreed and gotten heated discussions very often. One morning before church, they were discussing this in the parking lot, which is not a good idea to discuss politics before coming to church on Sunday morning. Uh, but one morning they were discussing. It got very heated. They almost came to blows. They were getting ready to 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 throw uh you know throw throw some fists around. It's very dangerous. Uh, and so the pastor goes out there and uh, he goes out to the parking lot and he, he brings these two men into his office and things calm down a bit and, and they apologize. And then they went into the service and then they both linked arms together and they received the Lord's Supper together together. They realize this is what unites us. There's something deeper that has bonded us together here than political party affiliation or positions on political issues or even nationality or anything else. The body of Christ, the shed blood of Jesus, has made us one. And our participation in the broken body of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus, is much deeper than our political party affiliation or or anything else. And the same is true for us here this morning, beloved, we're not united this morning as people have the same opinions regarding politics. We're not united here this morning as people with the same consumer preferences. We're not united here this morning as people of the same race or income or or sex or or anything. We're united by the body and blood of Jesus and in our common participation in Him. That's what we're bonded together in, in our mutual fellowship, our mutual communion, our mutual participation in Jesus. And that's infinitely greater and infinitely deeper than any bond and earthly things that we might have in common with or that we don't have in common with one another. Which brings us to the eighth answer to the question of the Lord's Supper. Eight, we see that the Lord's Supper is an occasion for self-examination. Flip back over to 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-seven 27 to 32. Paul says, "'Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner,' Will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, a uh, little side note the church in Corinth was a complete disaster. Uh, The way that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper created division when this meal was supposed to create unity. The rich would would come early and eat and drink their fill and they wouldn't leave enough for their poor brothers and sisters in their midst to receive. Some were even getting drunk on the wine. And because Christ is present in a special way in this meal as they were receiving the Lord's Supper together, he was present to judge. Some of them were getting sick. Some had even died because they were receiving this meal in an unworthy manner. And this is largely why, the, uh, why the, uh, this epistle was written to the Corinthians, to rebuke them for this chaos. And this is one reason why we, at Veritas, why we practice what we call fencing the table. Uh, we ask that those who are not followers of Jesus, uh, who are not walking in repentance, to receive the Lord's Supper. Because only those who are following Jesus, as is evidenced in their baptism, uh, and who are continuing to walk in repentance, should receive this meal. Only those who are in good standing with Christ and with the people of God should receive this meal. Uh, That's not to say that only sinless people should receive the meal, because if only sinless people received the meal, then no one would receive the meal. Uh, But it is to say it's for those who have examined themselves and who are walking in repentance and for those who have discerned the body, as Paul says, which, which means that they are to be in good standing with the people of God. They are to consider the people of God. The body that Paul is speaking of here is the church, And so this this is a call to self-examination, but it's not a call to a kind of neurotic introspection. Understand that. It's it's actually a call to consider Christ and your relationship with his people, uh, your relationship with others in the room who are receiving the Lord's Supper with you. Self-examination, discerning the body, doesn't mean we get really wrinkled foreheads and pretend to be sad for a few minutes. That's not what we're supposed to do here at the Lord's Supper. Uh, But to examine yourself before coming to the table means to consider Christ, to consider his people, the people sitting with you in this room right now, and to discern whether or not there's something you need to confess or someone you need to be reconciled to in the church. And this is the reason, actually, that we have a prayer of confession Early on, strategically placed in our gathering so that we can reflect and examine and confess things to God. And also, why we have what we call the passing of the peace before the sermon, where we all greet one another. It gives you an opportunity. If you need to be reconciled to someone before coming to the Lord's Supper, it gives you an opportunity to go to them, to confess your sin to them, to ask for forgiveness and to be reconciled to them before coming to the Lord's Supper. We're to examine ourselves and to be discern the body, to be reconciled, to be in good standing with the people of God before coming to this meal, because we're to consider Christ and his people as we come to this meal. So we confess, we pursue reconciliation. So the breaking of bread is an ordinance of Jesus Christ, signifying the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And it was given to us as a means of giving thanks for Christ's death, as a means of remembering Christ's death, as a means of proclaiming death and of receiving God's blessing, of communing with Jesus and of communing with his people and also as an occasion for self-examination. And if this meal was all of that and more, then no wonder this church in Acts 2 was so devoted, so sacrificially devoted to observing it and celebrating it as a body. If they hadn't an, even an inkling of understanding of what we see here in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, there's no question. It's not puzzling at all why they would be so sacrificially devoted to it. This church, they were enamored with Jesus. They were obsessed with Jesus. He had saved them, and he was the one that had ordained this meal and commanded his people to observe it. He was the one to whom they gave thanks for this in the meal. He was the one that they remembered and proclaimed in the meal. Not only that, but he's the one that they enjoyed communion with in the meal. They met with Jesus in this meal and received his blessing and the benefits of his death in the meal. And it's his people that they were made one with in the meal. And it's a means through which, the Spirit makes us more like Him. And if we understand that this morning, how could we be any less devoted to this corporate observance of the Lord's Supper? How could we be any less devoted to this meal? How could we be any less devoted to observing and celebrating and receiving the Lord's Supper? If we're devoted to Jesus, if we we hunger and thirst for Jesus, if if we thirst for him, if our souls pant for him, if we desire him, then this meal demands our devotion. And so I want to close with just four ways that we can be devoted to the breaking of bread as as a church family. First, come to the table. Come to the table. If the breaking of bread is truly all of those things that we just saw, and it is because the scriptures say it so, then it's something you want to show up for, right? It's something you want to show up for. This is something you want to be here for. I'm, I'm convinced that along with listening to the word read and proclaimed into our ears every week, this is the most important thing we can take part in every single week as the people of God. What, what could be more important than obeying Christ's command to receive this meal and to participate in his ordained means of giving thanks, of remembering his death, of proclaiming his death. What could be more important than receiving his blessing? What could be more important than than if if he's present in this meal in a special way, if we commune with him in this meal, if we experience oneness with him in this meal that we don't at other times, I think there'd be very little that would keep us from participating, being present as we receive the Lord's Supper. Imagine that you were just contacted by like your favorite uh, musical artist this week. Uh, Maybe Justin Bieber. I'm sure a lot of you like Justin Bieber. Just pretend you're a believer. Uh, and, And imagine that his people contacted you this week. And and they said, listen, Justin, he has a special concert coming up this Friday. It's a surprise. No one in Dayton knows, but it's going to be this big thing. He's going to be there, and uh, we're calling you. We want to know if you want to come hang out with young Bieber beforehand, and if you want to uh, grab a meal with him beforehand and be uh, you know, his backstage guest and, and be on the stage while he's performing, even come out and perform your favorite song with him. Y- you know, you'd probably move some things around to be present for that, wouldn't you? even if you're not a big fan of Justin Bieber, just being there, that'd be pretty cool. You'd probably move something. You were planning on going to Starbucks and creating some lame spreadsheet or something, or going to a, a movie with your friends later on. But listen, young Bieber, Justin Bieber, the Justin Bieber has contacted you and invited you personally to come hang out with him and to be uh, present as he performs. Well, Listen to this, every single week you are invited to the table of the king of the universe. That's way better than Justin Bieber. The one who died for you and for your salvation, he he invites you to dine with him, to commune with him, to to proclaim his death, to see his performance and to receive the benefits of his broken body and shed blood. That's an amazing gift. That's an amazing gift. What an incredible invitation, one that we should wholeheartedly receive and and avail ourselves to. We want to be present, far be it from us to neglect this wonderful grace to dine with Jesus. Far be it from us to, to neglect this wonderful grace. What could possibly get in the way of that? Celebrating the Lord's Supper. We get to do this every week, so let me exhort you, be present. Come to the table. Don't let other things, lesser things, interfere with this. Secondly, when you come, come reverently. You know, if this is a place where we remember Christ's sacrifice, where we commune with him, you know, you don't waltz into the presence of the King of the universe flippantly. We come reverently and soberly. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord's Supper is a time in the service, again, where we become miserable and we get wrinkled foreheads and pretend to be really sad. That's not what I'm saying. Why We should come with joy and with thanksgiving, but we also don't want to come flippantly. We don't want to come to the table as if Christ is lucky to have us. We want to approach the, the Lord's table soberly and reverently, knowing that our King is holy and perfect and true, and that we don't deserve to be in His presence. We don't deserve to be welcome to His table. We don't deserve that. And the price that he paid for us to be welcomed to his table was costly. It was excruciating. He shed his blood. His body was broken so that we could dine with him, so that we could commune with him. Third, come considering others. This meal, again, is not a personal quiet time with a snack. It's a communal meal. It's a corporate meal. It's a family meal. It's a meal that makes us one. It's a meal that is assigned and seal of our union with Christ and with one another. Therefore, don't, you know, don't put your head between your knees and, and forget everyone else in the room. You're participating in this meal with other Christians. These other followers of Jesus, your brothers and sisters with whom you share, Ephesians 4, 5 says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, meaning your brothers and sisters with one another. Therefore, come to the meal as a family, looking at one another, making eye contact with one another, reaching out and touching one another and giving one another hugs, celebrating this meal as a communal family event. That's what it's supposed to be. Look up. Don't, Don't look down. Look up. Make eye contact. Reach out to people. Touch them. Hug them. Celebrate this meal considering others. And fourth, come to be assured. Come to be assured. The words that we say every single week when we take the bread and the cup, listen to what they are. The body of Christ broken, listen, for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. It's for you personally. Let let that sink in. That, That Christ's blood was shed for you. His body was broken. When Christ was arrested and beaten at the hands of sinful men, when Roman soldiers flogged him and filleted his back, when they drove those nails into his hands and pressed that crown of thorns into his skull. And when they pierced his side with that spear, his body was being broken. His blood was being shed for you. He, he, he hung there on that tree naked and bloodied and broken and crushed, spilling his crimson so that you could be with him because he desired you. Listen to to what he prays to the Father in John 17, 24. He told the Father, I desire, I I, I long for, I desire that they whom you have given me, that they would be with me where I am. He did that. His love for you, his desire for you, that you be with him where he is, drove him and motivated him to endure the suffering of the cross for you so that you could commune with him and be one with him and be with him where he is. He did that for you. And this meal proclaims that good news to you and gives you a moment that you can be with him, a moment in time that you're with him. And so come to be assured, come and eat and drink and be nourished by Christ at the table. Be assured of his great love for you. And we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper in and one of the things I'd like to encourage you to do is just take one of those eight aspects uh, in the Lord's Supper that we just saw. And I want to encourage you to focus on one of them as we receive the Lord's Supper. And maybe take one that you hadn't ever noticed before or that you haven't thought of for a while or that kind of just stood out to you and focus on that as we maybe it's Thanksgiving, maybe it's proclaiming, uh, maybe it's communing with Jesus. Maybe, maybe it's proclaiming his death. Maybe it's the, the, the communal nature of this meal that we celebrate with one another, the family nature of this meal. Choose one and meditate on it and think on it and, and let it mull over in your mind for a few moments before we all take part of the bread and, and drink the cup. But overall, let me encourage you, Christian, to come to the table, to come reverently, to come considering others, to come and be assured of God's great love for you and for, of the forgiveness for your sins. Let's pray as we prepare to receive and observe and celebrate the supper together. Father of all mercies, would you grant us your gracious presence now and the effectual working of your Holy Spirit within us? Would you bless this ordinance now that we may, by faith, receive and feast on the body and blood of your precious son who was crucified for us. Would you help us to feed on him that he may be one with us and us one with him, that he may live in us and us in him forever. We thank you for the great love displayed for us on the cross and that the cross is proclaimed and displayed for us here this morning in this meal. Help us to eat and drink for your glory and for the building up of your church whom Christ purchased with his blood. In his name we pray to you, Father. Amen.